Check it out. Welcome to Top of the Class. Hear from education experts and get insights from high achievers to learn how you can do the same. Get into those top schools. Ready? Proudly presented by Crimson Education, the world's leader in university admission support. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Top of the Class podcast. It's awesome to be joined by Ahan, Mikhail, and Anav, who all were finalists in the Solving the Impossible Award and a recent uh, competition where Anav took out the, the top prize there, a million-dollar trust fund. It's obviously a pretty incredible competition that's open to 14 to 18-year-olds. And the kind of level of problems that you guys were solving were pretty intense. So I would love to go around the room and for you guys to just introduce yourselves quickly, and then we can get into more meaty stuff about how you were approaching the competition, what kind of problem you decided to try and tackle. So let's start off with Ahan. Ahan, give us a bit of an intro to yourself. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm Ahan. I actually lived in Europe before I came to Canada. Yeah, currently based in Canada. And I started out my journey last year looking into the medicine space, doing some work in nanotechnology, and I moved over to AIML. I've been having a great time at my internship, and that's where I really got my inspiration to apply for the Solving the Impossible Award. Awesome, awesome. How about yourself, Mikhail? Hey, 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 everyone. My name is Mikhail. I am actually based in Toronto, Canada, similar to Arnav and Dahan. I have been working in the BCI industry for the past two years. So my sort of elevator pitch would be that I'm a 16-year-old brain-computer interface developer working on actually building the tools necessary to read and write our neural code. Specifically, what that involves is uh, iterating on functional ultrasound imaging neuroimaging modalities, uh, which is a type of neuroimaging modality that focuses on neurovascular coupling, which is like the correlation between hemodynamics and neural activation. And so what I'm personally doing is building the killer app of Neurotech by iterating on and improving this technology. Thanks, Mikhail. I I will pretend to know exactly what you were talking about just then. Mm, All those things definitely know exactly what you're you're talking about. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. And enough? Yeah, I just was about to say, I have absolutely no clue what you're saying either. Um, (laughs) But hey, my name is Arnav. I'm 15 years old. I'm the youngest software developer intern in the world at IBM. Um, and what I've been doing for the past couple of months, like six to eight months, is working in the space of machine learning, um, specifically in transfer learning. So figuring out how we can take what we currently have, which is these really narrow networks that are good at one thing, and then branch out to generally capable intelligent agents that are capable of doing multiple things and sort of reach that Terminator level intelligence that um, movies have like you know prophesized, however, um, for the benefit of humanity rather than the destruction of humanity. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, don't go creating like the next Skynet or something like that, man. Like, oh, yeah, yo, there's more research going towards stopping that than there is towards actually getting it to that point. It's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to kind of get an insight into what's happening in that field of robotics that is, you know, super advanced. What do you guys all have in common? As, you know, you're all doing pretty crazy stuff in the STEM field. Uh, what do you see as being like a common link that you three have? that perhaps other people don't have? Yeah, so the thing that we, I mean, we all come from very uh, sort of like diverse backgrounds, but the main thing that sort of connects us all and the reason why we all know each other is because we're part of the program, the Knowledge Society. And you're probably familiar, your audience is probably familiar with things like uh, Sequoia Capital or uh, Y Combinator, which are startup like accelerators. And they mm-hmm. 
put like lots of funding into companies and give them access to mentors so that they become they can become like you know really big unicorn companies right like billion dollar companies so tks is basically imagine like a startup accelerator but for humans like a human accelerator and so they take you know kids our age between uh, 13 to 18 i believe is the uh, age range there and they teach us about emerging technologies about mindsets about uh, some of the real world skills like presentations uh, one pagers marketing, things of that. And then they expose us to some of the uh, really interesting problems in the world and opportunities going on and how we can actually make an introduction into into these sorts of things and change the world. Yeah. Well, I'm going to guess there's the introduction that TKS makes. And by the way, I will um, give myself just a tiny bit of credit because Crimson Education, who powers the podcast, is now a partner with TKS trying to help students go from high school to then, you know, top universities like MIT, Stanford, trying to make that transition happen, which I'm sure you guys will be looking at doing in future. But essentially, yeah, like when they make the introduction, I'm sure that there's some students who kind of take that introduction and then run with it, right? And then go really deep into a particular field. Is that part of becoming really great in a program like TKS is your ability to then take an idea and run with it? So basically the value proposition of TKS is number one, it's community. Everyone wants to just really get better. Number two would be the directors. So we have various different directors spread across the world, all have own diverse amount of experiences and things like that. And really we're just learning more about uh, about them. And then also obviously the curiosity factor. So which has led us to these individual experiences. So really what we, we use the community, we use the directors in order to then follow our curiosity and then work on our individual paths. In terms of like student life now as a, as a high schooler, is that super boring for you and for like other students when, you know, you're going into maths class and you're, they're like, oh, we're going to be learning about calculus or, you know, we're going to be studying this book and you're just, you know, really wanting to get home and, you know, look into computer brain interfaces and all these other really cool things that sound a lot more interesting than what most people are learning at school. Yeah, for sure. I think um, just before I answer, going back, I want to double down on Mikhail's point is that the real value of TKS is that everybody comes in. TKS gives you the exposure and the tools and the access to all of these big problems, to these technologies. And it's everybody's curiosity and everybody's drive to make an impact that takes them in different directions. So the directors, they've been the biggest help. They are some of the smartest people. And their main goal is just how can we help all of these TKS students grow? And so once you have that exposure in TKS, like that going back to school, it seems kind of boring because you're doing research on, like Macau was talking this weekend, how we're doing research on BCIs and AI and improving AI. And you have to go and do like a bio test about something basic or learn something. So it's not always the most fun, but I think all the knowledge when you learn in school, it starts to add up as well. Just the way they teach it, I think is much, it becomes a lot more fast and a lot more interesting if it's self-driven. So for example, I know Arnav, he had to learn and me and Arnav have to learn the math to do some work in AI. And that makes learning math a lot more fun and interesting than having been taught through the school curriculum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the context around what you learn at school is often not there, right? Like they just kind of say, this is the topic you're learning. And I used to always say to the teacher, like, when am I ever going to use it? And literally her response at the time was, if you become a maths teacher, you'll need to know this. And I'm like, no, that's no, that's a terrible answer. You know, give me something that I can actually work with here. And uh, and have you just put in the in the chat that the Canadian school system is terrible? I think a lot of high achievers tend to feel that their school system is is a bit slow and and uh, a bit of a drag. Why do you particularly say that though? 
Well, I think the main thing that makes it, um, my main criticism for it, at least I wouldn't say it's like, you know, per se terrible, but my main criticism for it is that um, the way that it teaches kids, like the way my friends think about it is you'll go into math class and you'll memorize some formula, right? So for example, the formula for a circle is like, uh, we, we just did this, was like X squared plus Y squared equals R squared, right? Mm-hmm. And people will memorize that formula and you can write it down on your sheet for the test. But the issue is they don't go through the intuition as to why that's the case. Like they don't go through using the radius as a the hypotenuse in the triangle within that circle, right? You could think of it as like the polar graph. And um, the reason why I think that TKS really helps us sort of excel in school, even though we do basically no homework. Like I don't know about Alejandro Mikhail. For me, I've done like zero minutes of homework this entire year. Whereas like our teachers are expecting us to do something between like two, three hours and I'm still getting really good grades. Um, and the reason why is because from learning these really tough things, you kind of have to switch the way in which you learn stuff. And it goes from memorizing laws to basically making your mind or your learning mind, at least like an algorithm. And this algorithm takes an information and it aims to understand it deeply so that you can make the laws in math. You can understand the laws intuitively because you can understand the entire subject as a system holistically. And that's really, really useful because not only does it just assist in, you know, tremendously in learning way more complicated things, but for these sorts of pursuits, it's no longer just a endeavor of uh, memorization, but it is truly an endeavor of thinking and, and, you know, basically pretending you're like Isaac Newton, for example, inventing math uh, or inventing calculus, sorry. And so it's, it's definitely a very uh, interesting way of thinking. And it's a shame that that isn't taught in, in the school system, I believe. It's, it's kind of an, you know, an inevitability when you have to teach millions of kids every year. Mm. Um, but approaching that sort of intuition-based thinking, I think, would tremendously profit any of these students in the school system. Completely agree. I think part of the problem is that you know, the education system is often you know, one size fits all. It's trying to suit everybody. And so not everybody can get to that level of, you know, creating a, an algorithm inside your head type of thing and approaching math that way. But, you know, the fact that you would be able to do that in a place like TKS is fantastic. Ahan, Mikhail, do you have any thoughts on, on this way of thinking? Because it seemed like you guys had experienced something similar. Yeah. So similar to Arnov, I actually haven't spent a lot of time in, on school at, as well. And I'm I'm getting really good marks as well. And I think that what that really shows is that school is actually hackable, right? There are various different things that you can do in order to actually achieve high marks while not putting a lot of input so that you can spend the remainder amount of time to actually work on the things that you're passionate about. So once you understand that, that's when you can really evaluate what where you should be putting most of your input on so that you can actually get the desired output. Yeah, 100%. Ahan, do you have anything to say on like the general way of how you think and approach problems? Because I think this is like a super important part of how you guys are where you are in your lives right now, right? And, you know, as I've been saying, to, you know, like my mom would be like, oh, what's their, you know, what do their parents do? I'm like, no, no, no. Sometimes it's an exposure to a program or whatever it might be that gives students access to a different part of their brain or a different way of thinking that it allows them to, you know, have this time where they're not studying, you know, because that's what a lot of parents assume, right? Like if you're, you know, researching, you know, um, blockchains or brain interfaces, these kind of things, what about your homework? What about your studies? This kind of thing. Most parents would be like, how about your grades, you know? But if you, as you said, hackable, these kinds of things, um, there's ways around it. Have you got any experiences on, on that kind of side of things? Yeah, for sure. I think exactly what Mikhail said. There's a something called the 80-20 principle, which basically identifies what are the 20% of actions you can take 
that will lead you to get to 80% of results. I think that similar applies to school. When you look at, for example, you look at test prep, there are some really effective methods of studying like active recall flashcards that are much better than just spending hours looking over your notes. Or even if you have an assignment, something great you can do is just actually reach out to your teachers. I know if you talk to your teacher saying, oh, I'm going to be, I'm doing this outside of school. I have this internship. I'm still like dedicated to getting a good mark in your class. Could you help me to understand where I should be focusing on to get better? Talk to your teachers. Everybody's going to be super friendly, very helpful. And then it's also just a major mindset shift where you're not always thinking that school is the end goal. We think was it's one in the first session, actually, of TKS exposed you to most people go in their entire childhood life is like, okay, school is the end goal. Getting 100% of this test, it means I succeeded. Otherwise, I didn't. But it really, exposure to TKS and these other problems and more important things in the world help you to show that school is a great way to learn, but it's not the end goal. There's better yeah. things you can do. So don't over-optimize and get worried if you don't do the best you can because it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I, you guys remind me a bit about my occasional podcast co-host, and the founder of Crimson, uh, Jamie Beaton, who basically, uh, very similar to what you just said, like basically hacked away through self-studying and did the 20% to get the 80% result, like every single time. Like he was self-learning, you know, entire subjects in the space of a couple of weeks and then acing the exam because he knew the, the kind of study habits, talking to the teachers, what do I actually need to know to get a good mark on the exam? Don't give me all the fluff. Don't give me all the background. Just give me what I need to know for the exam. And he did really, really well. He got into you know, 25 of the world's top universities. I'll actually um, have to see if we can get you a copy of a new book that he wrote called Accepted. He basically wrote a book on how to get into top colleges. Now, let's talk about solving the impossible award because this is actually a really cool thing. I don't know a huge amount about it. I'm going to guess it's mainly like a US, Canada type vibe. Uh, but yeah, how many students were a part of it? Uh, how did you guys hear about it? Can you give us some kind of context or background as to how you got to where you are today as like finalists and winners and, and you know, smashing this competition out? Who wants to take yeah, that one? So um, the idea of the competition was um, the, uh, the guy that, that runs it, uh, Patrick Parier, his entire thing was like, okay, he's built all this capital in his career, right? Like he's, he's like, you know, a capital allocating machine, right? When it mm -hmm. comes to making money, this guy's a God, basically an infinite money source man. Uh, and so he's basically asking himself, like, how can we, or how can I make the largest impact possible? And his thing was, let me invest in who I would think would be, you know, a very high potential um, prospect, like as, as a youth right now, and then help them just completely like exponentialize their trajectory in life. And so that way they already, they're already asking themselves this question, how can I make a large impact? But they're only between the age of 14 and 18. So they have the rest of their lives to uh, go out and do that. And his entire goal was like, how can I make it so that you don't have to deal with, you know, the, the capitalistic part of society? How can I just allow you to keep working on your research? Like it was, it was specifically research oriented. And then um, hopefully you can go out and solve any of these important problems. And so I'm not sure how many people applied specifically. I know that they uh, didn't spend any money on marketing. So th they like, it was probably like less than you would think, hmm. but I know that um, globally, like it was, it, it was a competition for everyone. Like his entire idea is how can I get the, you know, the, the smartest person, not the smartest person from Canada, not the smartest person from the United States. Um, but basically the idea was like, how can I, or his goal at least was, making sure that we can work on something that doesn't necessarily get um, compensated in the 
uh, free markets, for example, like, you know, the research that me and Ahan were working on AGI um, is a very long-term pursuit, right? Like it's 20 years, 30 years. That isn't really compensated in the free market because you don't have a deliverable or like a something yeah. that is produced until the very end. And so his idea is like, how can I just make sure that you don't have to ever worry about getting a job or doing something like that um, or doing something you don't want to do that's straying away from that goal so that you can spend all of your time becoming, you know, really, really smart in the field uh, and then, um, you know, eventually solving the problem. And I should preface, right? Like none of us here are really like, really like extremely insane at any technologies that we're working on. Like we definitely have made substantial progress compared to, you know, someone our age. Um, but we're, you know, we're not close to like Jeffrey Hinton, for example, in AI, or, uh, I don't know of any of the gods in BCI, but we're, we're just on that, on that sort of trajectory so that we'll be at that level sooner than later. Yeah. I've always been intrigued on the show, like chatting to students who are doing some pretty intense research in these fields. Like, how do you even access, you know, or where do you go to research these types of technologies when you are 14, 15, 16? Because, you know, most of the time I would think that that's a college level thing. Are you going to colleges and professors and like saying, hey, I want to research this thing. Can I spend some time? Or, you know, you might be going to companies like you're at IBM at the moment. Are you asking those guys like, hey, I'd love to know more about this? Like, you know, like how do you even begin to research a field that most high schoolers would not even know about, let alone have access to in terms of like no high school lab, I would think has, you know, equipment to, you know, robotically build these types of things that you guys are talking about. Of course, there's the internet. You know, I mean, that's obviously the first port of call, probably YouTube, et cetera. But like beyond that, where do you go to start researching in depth these types of fields? Ultimately, the two things that I've realized in the past year, especially, is that the internet and people are very powerful tools. Like you can learn so much from a quick 15 minute conversation from someone that you actually look up to. And also you can learn a lot from just various different research papers, various different textbooks, various different websites that all are touching on information that you could get in a college, a college level education. And so it's really just about how you approach these tools and how you use them to your advantage. Uh, for example, I'll give an example about me personally. I'm learning about how I can iterate on a specific neuroimaging tool. And so what I'm working on specifically is just reading research papers for eight hours every single day and just understanding the end-to-end pipeline of how this technology actually works. So then in the next year, I can then go about iterating on this technology and get to a level in which this technology has the ability to read our neural code at micro scale, at one neuron or whatever it may be. And so that's really what the goal is. What is motivating you? Why is these topics or the topics that you've chosen, why are they a passion for you? I know that might be a a kind of odd question to ask, but the idea of reading a research paper for eight hours a day is the last thing that I would ever think a teenager would be interested in, right? Like that sounds a crazy thing for a teenager to be like, yeah, I'm going to dedicate myself to reading research papers, like especially for topics or or goals that seem, as you guys are working on as well, Ahan and and, and Av, like that is like 20, 30 years in the future. So why are the topics that you guys have chosen, do you see yourself as being an integral part of the development of these particular fields as well, I think is one of the other the questions that I've got wrapped up in that. Uh, Han, I'll throw to you for that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you need to give a little bit of background. So I actually, yeah. I did, last year I did, like I said, I talked about mostly folks in nanotechnology 
And the key aspect to your previous question, how I learned was just conversations. Like I tried to have a couple of meetings each week instead of just reading an article online or a research paper. You should just like send an email to, to the author of the paper and understand why did you do this? They'd be more than happy almost always to help you, to spend some time helping you understand. And then actually one of my, um, through a serendipitous opportunity, one of my articles got read by the CEO of a applied AI company in downtown Toronto. And after going through the interview process, speaking with him, I got an internship um, in this in company called Quantify, which is one of the leading machine learning companies in Toronto. And then, so this, I found out, like I said, the Dragon's Vault co competition, it was towards the end of August. And I was still working full-time in my summer internship. And I was looking, okay, which problems do I want to solve? So I initially talked, I made a list. It was actually this simple, it's crazy. I made a list of all the different technologies that I thought I'd be interested in, nanotech, virtual reality, AI, ML. And next to that, I made a list of all the different problems I wanted to solve. And then, so I narrowed down pretty quickly to AI and ML as a technology. But when I realized it took me so long and I couldn't narrow down about which problems I want to solve. There's climate change, there's things in physical technology, there's air pollution, there's even like different technical problems, like improving machine learning models. So I couldn't decide which problem to look at. And, okay, what tool can I build to help me to solve all of these problems? And that's what got me to the field of AGI. And then I looked at it, okay, it's a highly technical field, but just the love of the field and love of learning and understanding is really what gets me excited because I wake up like, damn, this is so cool. Let me spend as much time as I can trying to understand. But it really was that simple. I just looked at, made a list and then went from there. That, that's pretty cool, actually, to hear that that, uh, that started at that list point and these things and these things and then what can I do? And then you land on AGI. But yeah, I, I can see that like, once you've landed on a field, when you can see the potential of that field having the impact of, you know, every I think every young person wants to have an impact these days. And I think you guys have certainly found that field that could have huge amounts of impact. And I've, how about yourself? Did you have a, a list approach? How did you start thinking about what the world's biggest problem was or the uh, unsolvable problem might be? Yeah, well, I mean, I have this whole uh, journey. It's it very long. So I'll, I'll try and keep it concise. But basically... Uh, when I was um, 10 years old, I was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. Um, and this really was like obviously a huge shock to me and my family and definitely changed the trajectory of my life. But um, I had previously gone to India and Thailand and I had seen um, extreme poverty firsthand. So I had seen, you know, kids without families. I saw like amputated kids on the street that obviously wouldn't be getting any money. Um, and um, what that made me realize after I got cancer was like, I was still super privileged to be in the position that I was at. Because if I had been diagnosed with the same condition um, and I was one of them, I would have died. Um, but as you can see, I'm very much not dead, uh, mm -hmm. to quote um, uh, Black Panther. And so I was kind of fueled with motivation at that moment, right? I was like, how can I make my life now that I'm like super, you know, awake about or, or um, aware of how important, you know, this opportunity is, how can I make my life the most impactful? And I switched around from many things. Like I started with extreme poverty, obviously very inspired by that entire experience. So I was working with um, a couple of my friends on problems like the water crisis, on open defecation, on vaccine distribution. And then what I realized, I was talking to a lot of the professionals in the industry or in, within this field called um, effective altruism. And it's basically concerned with, there's a lot of charities in the world that want to do great things. There's a lot of people that want to do great things. But not many people that want to do great things actually do great things. And the reason why is because a lot of these charities and a lot of their approaches are either misguided or just they're not executing properly. And so how can we make 
or how can we go about doing research in such a way that we create the highest impact possible with our efforts? And so I talked to a lot of professionals at these um, sort of companies. There's a company called Open Philanthropy, which is right now like giving. They have a conference in uh, England that my friend Gorjop is at, and they're giving away like $43 billion to organizations to, to work on these sorts of problems. Wow. I was talking to one of the guys there that was concerned with this research, um, Luke um, Wellhauser, and he's, uh, he's also like an AI guy. And I had a super enlightening conversation with them that made me realize that the highest point of leverage for us as individuals is technology. So the, my sort of philosophy behind technology, and actually when I say my, it's kind of stolen from a guy, uh, Balaji uh, Srivasan. He used to be the CTO of um, Coinbase. But it's like technology is, is kind of just a way for us as humans to remove or to, to reduce scarcity. And so technology serves as this thing. At no other point in history uh, could individuals make the same level of impact that they can today. Like the the team that runs Facebook, for example, they are a team of like 50 people, I think, or it might even be less than that, uh, impact 3 billion people around the world. And the ability now to make impact um, is very closely tied in the age that we live in, the information age, with ability rather than things like resources or luck. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's, a, there's an element of luck to everything, but far less than it was, for example, in like the 1600s, right? Like you'd have to be high-class nobility, you'd have to be either like an advisor to a king or be the king himself. And so technology, I think, serves as the leeway for our generation to make the most amount of impact possible. And um, AGI, I just, I was just naturally gravitated towards AGI because it had the prospect of being the universal algorithm, like the algorithm that could solve any problem, could learn anything. And yeah, I just fell in love with brains and simulating brains on computers and figuring out how we can make these sort of agents. It's very, it's very curiosity driven, I'll be honest with you. It's very uh, curiosity driven, but there, there's many elements that come into it, you know, the impact, curiosity, yeah, um, all sorts of things. Yeah, obviously a lot of life experience has gotten you to where you are today and gotten you super focused on achieving what you want to achieve in this particular space. Uh, so, and, and I, I think it's cool that a lot of you guys know the kind of who's who in the technology space, you know, like the CTO of Coinbase, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas like a lot of teenagers are probably like, oh, I know, you know, the the starting lineup for the Lakers or I, I know like the actors or whatever, right? Like the celebrities in, in the traditional sense where you guys have like the celebrities of the tech sector, which is, uh, you know, whoever they might be. But it's cool that you've got these role models um, and, you know, I think it's it's worth for students to start looking into as a starting point, you know, who are the movers and shakers in the technology space and how could I get to that kind of level as well? We'll, we'll end with uh, Mikhail actually on this, you know, how you got started in this motivational following the tech pathway and yeah, starting to understand what you would do with the Solving the Impossible Award. Yeah, for sure. So ever since I was a little kid, I've always been in love with the brain been exploring various different concepts related to free will, consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. And so ultimately when as a kid, I always had these big dreams of like achieving X or achieving Y, but it was always like these brain related fields. So whether that could be like becoming a neurosurgeon or becoming a neuroscientist or something along those lines, because I just wanted to really interface with the brain and I wanted to be as close to the brain as I possibly could. But it wasn't actually until two years ago that I finally realized that in order for us to really understand interface with and actually improve the brain, 
there must be some form of technological revolution. So I was listening to this, this specific video with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Ray Kurzweil, and they were talking about these nanobots that had the ability to increase the bandwidth of our brain. And it was like crazy to me because what we would be able to do, like right now, if we want to learn something, it could potentially take days, weeks, months, or even years to actually learn that specific thing. But by increasing our brain's bandwidth, we would be able to potentially have thoughts come out of our brain and into our brain at an exponential rate. Hmm. Um, And so that's really what I wanted to focus on. And so now what I'm focused on is specifically is iterating on a specific neuroimaging tool so that I can actually get us to that level in which we're actually getting specific neural activity out of our brain at an exponential rate and also into our brain. Uh, So really just that overall idea of reading and writing our neural code. It makes me think of uh, the Matrix a little bit, you know, where he's like, yeah. I know Kung Fu after being downloaded with a disc of you know, Kung Fu exactly. and how to do it type of thing, uh, yeah, which is super cool. Now, let's talk about the actual competition. What was the competition asking of you guys? Like, what did you have to do in terms of presenting your research? Did you have to do like a slide deck? Or did you have to show something? Like, what was some of the, uh, I guess, the rubric there that judges were using to determine, you know, what you guys were actually working on? Yeah, for sure. So I can um, start off. So the initial competition, it was you're looking for a essay and a video. There was no restriction, nothing to talk about, just basically whatever you supposed to be most authentic, reflect your personality. So they can just try to exhibit that you are someone with capability of making impact and someone with a trajectory of high potential. And that's it. So, so we all made the video, we did the essay. And after that, we had a quick interview. It was less of an interview, more it's a conversation with Patrick, where he talked to each of us about what our vision was, what we were trying to solve, was it possible? And it was actually a great conversation for me because me and Patrick, we had scheduled for 15 minute interview, but we talked for like almost 30, 45 minutes, just jamming out about different concepts in AI. And then for the final presentation, there was a couple of judges as well. And they were just looking at presenting what your vision is and how you plan to accomplish. So it sounds like almost a shark tank kind of situation. Am, am I right? The main thing though, is like, it was a highly ambiguous process. Like you could do really whatever you wanted. So for example, Mikhail and Ahan had a large focus on like their stories and um, their sort of plans, action plans to help them get to the point they want to be in their trajectory right now. Me and Amy had more like uh, talking about work we were currently working on. And then Brianna had like a you know good mix of both. Really, it was up to us, whatever we want to do. You know, if we want to sing them a song, we, I'm pretty sure we could do that as well. <laughs> um, but it was just essentially illustrating to the judges or doing whatever it would take to convince them that we were, um, you know, high potential candidates and uh, could solve some of these uh, higher order problems in the uh, future. What about your particular presentations do you think enabled you to get to the final and, and you know, end up becoming a winner in your case enough? Uh, like, what is it that impressed the judges so much about what you guys are working on, do you think? I mean, I think it was it was kind of unique for everyone because, you know, with that ambiguity comes a level of uh, idiosyncratic nature for the presentations. For me, I think the thing that was probably the most convincing, I mean, I don't know, I'd have to ask Patrick, but for me, I think it was, um, I was presenting like, you know, extremely like novel research, you know, never really seen before. And um, I made like in two weeks, like a model after the uh, different papers I was looking at and connecting them together and seeing the broader implications of that. And so being able to accurately, like to a very high level of depth, 
explain an extremely technical subject that is like, you know, cutting edge was a big um, convincing factor, I think, for, for me that, you know, I knew what I was talking about and that I would be high potential or high possibility of solving AGI. Uh-huh. I think ultimately for me, it was my conversation with Patrick, because I think the essay, there were, I'm not sure how many options, but probably a lot of applicants. My video was, it talked about my story, talked about my vision, but ultimately our conversation was when it was just me and him and I could actually talk about very technical topics. We talked about what are the issues with even like capital allocation in today's um, startup ecosystem in research. If we talk about AI, why, how people are training models the wrong way. I think that as soon as I talked about that, he realized that I had the same level of technical depth that some of his previous colleagues had in AI and I could be able to get to that level. And then my presentation was more about what is my plan to get to that level because it's very long range and I haven't been working in the field as long as someone like Arnav. So just how, how do I plan to get to that level? And then Mikhail? For me, what I put a lot of bias on is discussing what my vision was and then the quantifiable steps to get there. So whether that's, like I said, talking about the knowledge gaps, what do I actually have to address in order to get to this level? And then also, what would this overall vision look like? And then also even just my journey before this. So like to give you some background, like in the past year, I've built like 15 plus projects, written a bunch of academic papers and done various different other things related to BCIs that could potentially make me the best candidate. And so I really put a bias on those two things, talking about my vision and also talking about my journey to actually get to that level. Awesome. With me though, like there's a, I feel like most of my life now has basically just revolved around like the work that I do. Like I don't really go outside or do anything like that. I'm a very uh, losery type of person now, I think from a, a third perspective. <laughs> well, at least you're aware of it and you're certainly getting a lot of LinkedIn love. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. All my homies, all my homies on LinkedIn. I have to say, LinkedIn has provided me with so much value getting into work. Like I met one of the, the big individuals that I met, Sava Spesparsi. He is a researcher at DeepMind and um, he's been you know tremendously helpful to me, uh, helping me navigate through the process of learning AI and all this stuff. And so I think that LinkedIn has been really, really useful for all sorts of things. Pretty much every episode of the top of the class feels like an advertisement for LinkedIn because it's just like students who are on LinkedIn and you're right, you know, it's like my homies are on LinkedIn, whereas most students are like, oh, you know, I spend most of my time on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it might be. Uh, and then there is this small percentage of students who somehow often are guests on the show who spend a considerable amount of time, you know, hustling on LinkedIn and that's the way that they like to spend their social media time. But Ahan, yeah, talk us through like what's going on in, in your kind of immediate circle, immediate life that can kind of paint a picture for some of our uh, listeners. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we do that, yeah, LinkedIn has been like LinkedIn and Twitter both have been incredibly valuable. I think I got my whole internship because I posted my article on LinkedIn and the CEO already. And then Twitter is just great for building in public and just like spontaneously getting connections and meeting new people. I know that that is like a TKS thing, building in public, right? It started a while ago, actually looking at when you're building your startup for uh, entrepreneurs to build in public. But then now it's sort of like you learn in public, you build in public, you grow in public, you just get um, gather community and see if you can connect with like-minded individuals, not just physically through program, but all over the world through things like LinkedIn and Twitter. The intention there is kind of like with building in public is to foster uh, serendipity. And so the idea is like with, with Ahan, for example, he's a really good example of serendipity the CEO of that uh, AI company, Quantify, literally reached out to him. You know, yeah. like 
you know, you can go into a conversation at a conference and be like, oh yeah, I'm uh, 15 and I'm an intern, I'm AI intern at this company, um, Quantify. But what's even cooler than that is like, oh yeah, I'm 15. And they reached out to me to ask me to become an intern at their company, you know? And so <laughs> the idea is like, how can you do networking that like networks when you're not actively, you know, reaching out to people when you're working on your stuff instead. And so that, yeah. that was the intention I think behind that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's that idea that, you know, if you're working on something, share it because you never know who's going exactly. to read it and who's going to reach out and be like, Hey, the thing that you're working on is really cool. Like a lot of people as you know, I think the, you know, build behind closed doors and then eventually present it as a finished product but you've missed like a hundred opportunities along the way of your learning process and what you've done. And, uh, you know, you could really extend your reach just by showing people what your interests are and what you're working on rather than just the finished product. But yeah, I, I think that's like a very good tip for our listeners for sure. Building public more is is the general um, theme there. So Ahad, you were going to talk about what's going on in your room there as well. Yeah, for sure. I think there's nothing crazy. You can see the basketball net at my door. That's like, my number one source for all brainstorming when I'm thinking of projects, articles, some random hackathon, I always go and I get my best ideas. And then I have my Kindle on my desk right here, which is like similar to Arnab where I have like all my favorite books. And every time if I'm bored and I'm bored before I sleep, I'm just reading. It's fun. And then I have a notepad, which is always like, have like sort of L-shaped desk, I have a notepad. It's always when I have conversations with, even just like with Mikhail and Arnav, I get some cool thing or insight I want to write down or look into, I just note it down. So nothing crazy, I mean, but it, it's fun. I, I like my room. So. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And Mikhail? Yeah, for me, uh, other than that huge brain poster, uh, my desk is literally my temple. Like I spend literally every second of my day outside of school, just like working at my desk. So uh, I have a really nice setup, but the one thing that's on my desk at all times is this headset, uh, which is oh. like an EEG headset and which in which I built all my projects with. I used it every single day last year, just building as many projects as I possibly could and just jamming out with it. And, and what it does at a very high level is take my brain signals and then outputs it to the computer. And then I could like program and build a bunch of projects using that using that source of data. So yeah, so ultimately that's the main thing I have on my desk. I think other than that, it's not, not too much. Yeah, just got a random brain scanning interface thing and we love sitting on your desk, which is cool. Not, not everyone has that, but of course, uh, you know, you guys are here for a reason. So that's some of the things you would find. Uh, I guess one of the, the final questions would be like, what advice would you have for students who are at that level where they, they really love tech, they really love STEM, but they are probably still stuck in the school bubble a little bit. Uh, who would like to yeah. dive into that? Uh, I have a couple of ideas about this, actually. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, uh, not just for this podcast, but because, you know, it's obviously directly applicable to uh, me and my friends. Um, the main thing that I would say, so the the sort of thing that we have that is like tremendously different or the tremendous benefit that we have in comparison to all other generations is we're the only generation to be born with access to the internet. And uh, I think leveraging the internet is like the greatest thing you can do. There's like a source of basically unlimited knowledge. And so um, Naval Ravikant, as he said, um, it's not um, the means for knowledge that is rare. It is the desire to learn. And I think um, looking at vivid cases of people that became really, really smart, really young, like there's people that are far smarter than us, I believe. Um, that became smart when they were younger than us too. So I would say probably the biggest example in my worldview is Laura Deming. Um, she was uh, born in New Zealand and homeschooled. There she taught herself 
uh, French literature and calculus before she was seven years old. She then became the youngest graduate of MIT, I think either at 13 or 14. I can't remember how that went. Uh, and now she's working in the longevity space. She's a VC for longevity companies working to literally cure death. And so she is, you know, a super, super cool person. Another example in AI is Chris Ola. He is a bit older than us, but he dropped out of um, university to help his friend on a terrorist case, um, which is a bit of a weird thing there. His, his friend didn't commit terrorism. It was some, you know, weird foreign thing. But he came back and without a university degree, single-handedly became one of the most prolific AI researchers today um, and has, you know, massive reach. He's a really, really cool guy. And so I think the main thing, the main thing that, you know, unifies all these sorts of different people is the fact that fundamentally, like when you learn anything new, whether it's from a book, an article, a video, a, a blog post, whatever it is, it's always coming from another individual or like another, another source. And until you're at the very top of your game in which you are the person that's now producing that new knowledge, right? Where you're like the top researcher. And so really what you want to do is you want to optimize to find and meet these kind of people. And I think like that, the one piece of advice, like I was thinking about this earlier as well, like during the podcast, the one thing I really want to take home for the, you know, the children listening or the ambitious children um, is like people are everything. Like all endeavors are human led, all endeavors are human directed. Everything you could possibly learn is from other individuals and all the grades are produced through that sort of apprenticeship. And so you want to optimize to find these people. Um, and I should mention like in the Chris Ola example, he wasn't like, obviously he, he, he dropped university and I'm pretty sure he was in forestry as well. So he wasn't like some God AI researcher before he was picked up by Michael Nielsen, who really provided him with that mentorship to get to that next stage from where he was at. Um, he just happened to be a very curious individual. He happened to be very passionate about this field of research. And so Michael Nielsen, who is a very prolific uh, AI and quantum researcher, um, just picked him up as, as sort of like a, an advisor. Like it wasn't really a PhD thing because obviously he wasn't in university, but Michael Nielsen was running the seminar series on AI before he published his landmark uh, textbook that I'm pretty sure Ahan and I have read. Uh, and so um, he got that sort of individual experience there. And I think that's really what you want to optimize for if you want to reach that sort of next level and become really, really good at something. It's really just to find these super smart people and get the advice to them, try to work with them in a lab or whatever it may be. And just remember that like people are everything. That's an awesome answer. You, you're like an encyclopedia of cool people in the uh, in the tech industry. It feels like. Well, here's um, the thing. Here's the thing. I follow my own advice, right? I just I just try and find the people. That's my new. That's kind of my framework now for learning stuff. Like I won't just search up, for example, when I was learning calculus, right? Like or, or linear algebra. I didn't just try and find you know the cheapest or most expensive or highest rated textbook. I tried to find you know the best teacher, or the the best or the guy you know leading linear algebra research or whatever it may be. And then I learned from that guy um, yeah. who was, uh, in that case, Gilbert Strang, you know, the, the legend at MIT. But that's basically, I think, the best framework you can adopt for anything if you want to become really good at anything. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I completely respect that approach. And that's a pretty cool response to that question about, uh, you know, advice for students. How about yourself, Ahan? What would you, uh, I know you guys have, have kind of had variations of that as well in terms of like learning from people and these kinds of things, but is there anything that you would say to students who are wanting to kind of level up their, their game to reach those kind of heights? Yeah, for sure. I think Arn has basically covered everything as he tends to do with his <laughs> infinite knowledge, but what's really interesting is apart from just taking advantage of the internet and just exploring, because everybody starts somewhere exploring to find, I think it's super if I'm also to try to 
get in one of these high growth communities because as one thing that like TKS pushes you to do, when you have people around you who are working at talking with big problems or Excel as their main goals, how can they push themselves for the most growth? It inspires you in a way like you can't imagine. Like I know, I know I speak for all of us and almost everybody in TKS that a lot of the things we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the community, weren't for not just the guidance of physical asking people for help, which is also a big part, but just when you're looking, when you like demotivate to do something, because everybody faces, when you see like you're happening like the summer, you see five of your friends like, oh, Mikhail's out here doing BCI, talking with like the top company, some other dudes working self-driving cars, like, okay, I gotta get up, I gotta get to work so I can continue. And it just really motivates you. And there's definitely always gonna be people, even in, in school, it's not just like school, like a place where everybody's, there's some really smart people in school as well. If you can align that, okay, I wanna work on this, I wanna learn AI, let's learn AI together. Two weeks, let's see how much you can learn and collaborate with them. I think that also having people in terms of not just reaching out for gain knowledge, but people in the community around you is a really undervalued aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's that old saying that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And, and that I think is a huge part of the inspiration is just to be thinking that life as a student doesn't stop at, you know, doesn't start and stop at school type of thing. Like your learning doesn't stop and start at school either. Um, but yeah, and, and Mikhail? Yeah, so in terms of advice for people who are getting into the STEM field, I think uh, a lot of the time, and I know I fell in this trap a lot, was just I continuously would read these papers, I'd continuously do all this thing and always consume information, do a bunch of courses. But I think that that's just an augmented and like a not an accurate representation of the knowledge that you have. And mm -hmm. so ultimately, the best way to actually learn and exponentially grow in the STEM space is by just continuously building projects continuously learn by doing continue like try to get maybe into a lab like i think ahan said to like just work and prone down on this type this type of skills that you actually want to build to actually get that hands-on experience so really just learn by doing as opposed to just consuming information and not actively doing anything with that information obtained as perfectly exampled by the fact that you've got like a brain headset thing sitting on your desk. Now, guys, this last question, any particular direction for you college-wise? Obviously, like Crimson helps students get into these top universities. So we'd love to hear if you had any ideas as to which colleges you were aiming for. I mean, like hearing what you guys are working on and the people that you know, obviously like MIT, Stanford, these types of universities might be one of the goals, but might not be. Anyone have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, I'm asked this question often, I think, like, and I always give this answer, which is that it's like highly dependent, I think, on the work that I'm able to get done in the next like two years. There's obviously a lot of options for the sort of AI research stuff. Like there's Caltech, there's MIT, there's Stanford. There's also a lot of ones that people wouldn't think of. So for example, the University of Alberta here in Canada is one of the best like universities with AI. Um, there's also a couple of stuff in uh, Montreal. Um, there's UCL in England. Uh, that's mm -hmm. actually where the founders of DeepMind, which is, you know, my favorite AI company met. And then another thing is uh, one of my really good friends, or I, I met him recently, Dr. Uh, Wattenberg. He's a uh, professor at uh, Harvard. He used to head the uh, Google Plus Humanity Initiative. Um, and so he's you know, AI legend. He's a legend of everything. He's basically, if I had to think about what God would be, he is basically God. <laughs> and so he runs a lab at Harvard. So you know, I might, I might have to clutch up and, and get into Harvard so I can uh, you know, work with this guy. But it's highly dependent, I think, on, on what I get done and what opportunities arise. I'm also pretty sure Elon Musk said that he might open up a university in Texas, the Texas Institute of Science and Technology. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of options. Another one I forgot to mention is U of T. So like 
arguably the world's best researcher in uh, deep learning, which is like the field of AI or that I specialize in, which is basically having multiple layers of of um, computation in neural networks, hidden layers is what it's called. Probably the best researcher, Jeffrey Hinton, uh, operates actually in University of Toronto. Now, I don't know if he's going to continue teaching because he's like 85 years old by the time that I get into university. But as I was saying before, you know, all if you just look at like my, basically my history of progress, and like my plans for how I'm going to optimize my progress and everything, it all kind of revolves around the central idea that I was saying before, of just like optimizing to find and, and meet and learn from the world's best people. Yeah, absolutely. Ahan, which college do you have in mind at this stage? If that is your thing, I mean, you could go the entrepreneurial path, like yeah, there's, there's uh, the possibilities are endless. I think it really depends similar to RNF on what I'm working on, what each university specializes in. Like I know um, Stanford is known for neuroscience for things like they have the top neuroscience professors, the labs, the resources. So probably looking at similar universities for AI, AGI, like Caltech, MIT, Stanford, haven't narrowed down that much, hasn't really been a big priority, but really looking at where's the thing that'll give me the highest quality of education and also just the best community, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Mikhail? Yeah, so like uh, Ahan said, because I'm very focused on the brain and neuroscience specifically, definitely Stanford would be like the end goal for college specifically. You know, you have like some of the awesome professors, David Eagleman, you have Andrew Huberman, et cetera, et cetera. So like there's various different professors uh, within Stanford or coming out of Stanford that are just amazing. And, you know, having them at your disposal to talk about whether the specific neurotech startup that I may have in uni would just be amazing. But the trap that I don't want to fall in is just like this hyper optimization trap. So like spending too much time optimizing for these schools, because I think ultimately that just takes away from your overall work in your specific passion, working on your passion and things like that. So really, I hope it's just a byproduct of what I'm working on. You've got a, a very, very good point there. I think a lot of students are so focused on, you know, getting into college that they forget to work on their passions. A lot of the time, your passions will be the thing that gets you into college anyway. You know, I think admission officers are very good at seeing authentic activity lists uh, and not like modified ones to get into college, so to speak. But yeah, certainly something to keep in mind there. But guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. But I know it's getting a little bit late there in Canada. So I really look forward to sharing this episode far and wide. Please send me any links that you want to share. They'll be in the show notes for students interested. Join our Slack group. I heard like a little Slack notification going off somewhere in the middle of the, the podcast. So yeah, we've got a uh, Slack community for top of the class at the moment as well. So I'll put that in the show notes too. But guys, thank you again so much for giving up your time and sharing your, your experiences. It's been awesome to have you on the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Top of the Class. Subscribe for future episodes. For show notes and to plan your best future, head to crimsoneducation.org.